Well, our, our reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians, the first 17 verses. Hear God's word to us. Paul, by the will of God, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For if, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Chrysippus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized everyone, anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The word of the Lord. Our cultural experiences as Americans, more than ever before, is one that is shaped by numerous conflicts around competing identities. All politics today, in one way or another, is identity politics. There's left-wing identity politics, there's right-wing identity politics, and there's all kinds of identity politics in between. There's Black Lives Matter, there's Asian Lives Matter, and there's Blue Lives Matter. And our political battles today, I think, are less defined by policy or different views on policy or programs or economics and more about a fight for the recognition of our identities such that political policy and programs aren't simply about governance, from which we can disagree on what good governance is, but more ways in which we express and practice our identities. And because of this embrace of the politics of recognition, our political life as Americans has become emotionally supercharged, right? Uh, it's taken outsized weightiness and uh, importance in our life than it ever did before. And so coming off a year of quarantine, um, of pandemic, 
and a bitterly fought election, we are more than ever noticing and feeling our divisions. We're more than ever feeling the things that divide us from one another. And all these divisions within the body politic of America get reflected back to us in the body of Christ. The body of Christ in America has been deeply divided. And let me, permit me um, to speak somewhat personally. I have never experienced more division and conflict in the church than I have in the past year and a half. And I'm talking about this church. But I know it's happening in other churches as well, because I talk to my friends and pastors. Divisions about how to respond to the COVID pandemic, when to open, how much, whether to wear masks, social distancing, everything possible you can imagine, you could be divided on COVID. We've experienced it. Divisions about how to talk about race, racism, Black Lives Matter. Divisions about how to talk about the Trump's presidency and the election. Divisions on human sexuality and the church's position on human sexuality. Divisions simply as a result of interpersonal conflict between people in the congregation. Divisions around leadership style and process. And of course, the most painful for me is a division that resulted in Pastor Phil leaving our church. Somebody who was one of my dear friends for 10 years. So while all the underlying uh, seeds of these divisions um, had been building for many months, they seemed to all bloom at the same time in a two-month period in the spring of last year. And I felt caught. I was caught in the middle of this storm of division. And the result was, the impact on me was my pretty much near emotional, spiritual collapse from which I did not think I would be able to recover. Now the Lord has been gracious to me. So take heart. <laughs> take heart. I am, I'm, um, I am recovering. I, um, I'm in a much better place today than I am. I was a year ago. The fact that I'm even sharing this with you is, is a sign of that. And now I share my personal experience with you of the impact of the the divisions in our church this past year, not because I see myself as a victim or as an innocent bystander in what happened. I was just caught in the middle of it all. I know that I played a role. I know that I bear responsibility. I know that I made a lot of mistakes about how things were handled that didn't lead to peacemaking, didn't make things better. And so a big part of the past six months for me of growing and and this journey and healing has been learning and figuring out what it means for me to take responsibility for what happened and how to learn and to grow from it. Now, it wasn't my intention um, to speak so directly and openly about these issues and how they personally impacted me. Um, but as I began to really dive into the book of 1 Corinthians for this series, I saw that Paul was modeling a style of leadership that I think requires me to be more personable, personal and vulnerable, especially we're talking about division. <laughs> Paul is talking about division, and it's easy sometimes for us to make it abstract and, and not actually name it, but that's not what Paul does. 
of all the churches that Paul founded, the one that was the most troubled, the one that he had the most personal conflict with was the Corinthian church. And we have two letters. We know there are more letters. Two letters of Corinthian correspondence in which you find Paul at his most personal and his most vulnerable and his most intimate with the congregation, especially the second letter. And what Paul is doing all the time, and really in all his letters to his congregations, but especially with the Corinthian, is he's always negotiating his pastoral identity with them. He's always trying to help them figure out what is his relationship to them and their relationship to him and how they should see him and how he sees them. That is part of being a pastor. And in doing this, in the way he addresses the congregation, what he's seeking to model for them is a healthy spirituality, um, a healthy leadership. Now, I don't think that the problems in our congregation and the things that we went through are quite as severe as what, you, what we'll see in the Corinthian church, and so I don't want to say they're, you know, quite the same. And yet I do think that the path that, that Paul lays out for us in this letter is, is, is the path that we should be on as well. The way he thinks and helps them think about themselves is what we need to do. So central to healthy spirituality is not being afraid to directly address the problems within the body. And after his greeting, Paul gets straight to the point. If you look in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and with the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Paul, from the beginning, names, names the problem, the problem of division. And what he does is he appeals for unity. And that's, verse 10 is the theme of the entire letter. The whole letter, in a sense, flows from this ten, verse 10. I appeal to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That's the purpose of the letter in a nutshell. And there's all kinds of different issues that Paul deals with, but this is an appeal for unity. Now, my original reasons for wanting to preach through this letter were, were uh, not related to the issues of divisions. I actually did not even think about this as one of the reasons of why I wanted to preach on this. I was drawn to this letter because of the way it, it addresses, and uniquely, I think, issues of cultural and racial and socioeconomic identities and the ways in which these things get conflicted and how Paul gives us a, a view of, of an identity in Jesus Christ and his cross and resurrection. But as I, as I studied more, the Spirit clarified me, for me more um, the purpose of this letter and help me see that I cannot talk about what it means to have an identity in Jesus Christ without also talking about our specific experiences of belonging and membership in this church. Because that's what Paul does, right? We can't avoid talking about then our, our brokenness. See, the, the reality is this, is that you cannot know what it means to have a Christ-shaped identity without specific belonging. 
No one can get an identity in the abstract. You cannot sign yourself an identity. An identity comes from, from, from the experience of belonging and recognition. See, that's why it's a myth, the idea that somehow you could be a Christian without the church, without a community that sees you as a Christian and affirms that in you. You can't just give yourself an identity. You can only experience an identity in community and the recognition of that. Paul knew this, right? And he knew how damaging it was to our identity in Jesus Christ when the church is divided. Because a church divided is a church in identity crisis. A church that does not fully grasp who it is in Jesus Christ. And so the goal of his letter is to bring about unity. To help the Corinthian body to heal from their divisions. And particularly by focusing them on the meaning of the cross and the resurrection in their lives. As they experience that together as a body. And so for Paul, and this is really key, there's no such thing as finding our true identity in Christ without experiencing unity with his body. There's no such thing as finding an identity in Jesus Christ that does not involve you experiencing unity with his body. So in other words, if you are divided from the body, within the body, or you are simply isolated from the body, you will not know what it means to have a Christ-shaped identity. So this week I came across a very insightful essay by uh, David Bailey, who is an African-American pastor in Richmond, Virginia, and he wrote an article about the challenges of racial reconciliation in the church, and his central argument was that when it comes to the practice of reconciliation, in the church, we have to start thinking about it as a form of spiritual formation. Reconciliation is spiritual formation. Reconciliation is spiritual formation. This is a very Pauline way of thinking about reconciliation. See, we're prone to think about reconciliation in very different terms. Reconciliation is what happens when we name injustice and justice is served, right? Or reconciliation happens when we uh, learn to forgive and release Reconciliation happens when we go through a conflict resolution process. I think all of these things are part of reconciliation. But what's missing here is God's role. God's role in reconciliation. The fruit of Christian maturity is a deeper experience of reconciliation. The fruit of Christian maturity is a deeper experience of reconciliation. Growing in Christ means we experience more unity, more oneness, more reconciliation with not just with God and with ourselves, but with those who are around us. Reconciliation is a fruit of sanctification. And this happens when we grow deeper and more mature in Jesus Christ. So where does the process of reconciliation begin? Where does it start? Where does healing begin? It starts in baptism. It starts in baptism. The identity conversation for the Christian starts with the sacrament of baptism. Baptism is our initiation into the body of Christ and into its oneness. And Paul states quite clearly later in chapter 12 uh, the relationship of oneness and unity in baptism. He says in chapter 12, he says, for in one spirit, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew and Greek, slave and free, 
all were made to drink of one spirit. So there Paul has both sacraments in mind, the table and the font, and that both of them initiate and nurture us in the oneness of Jesus Christ together. Baptism into Jesus Christ is baptism into the unity of the faith. And yet, and yet, not only is the Corinthian congregation not living into the unifying reality of baptism, it seems as if baptism itself has become the grounds for division. Um, see, see what Paul says here. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. And what I mean is that each one says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Chrysippus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. It seems that members of the Corinthian body were attaching spiritual significance and status to specific apostles in their ministry and who baptized them, such that to be baptized by Paul puts you at a higher level than if you were baptized by Apollos or, or the reverse. And the very rite of baptism seemed to be a source of division to the point where Paul says, I didn't, I'm glad I didn't baptize very many of you. Now, you might be wondering, what is, what is the content here of these um, divisions? I mean, all of these are Orthodox apostles, right? Apollos and Peter and Paul and Christ. I mean, how, how are these different schools or different theologies or factions? How could you develop factions out of this? And we, most, most scholars of, of this book don't think that there were real theological differences here. But to follow Paul or to follow Cephas or, or Paul had more to do with the way in which the Corinthian body had turned these apostles into cults of personality, right? Each apostle embodied a, a slightly different style or sensibility or personality and how they preached and how they did ministry. And, you know, people were attracted to them. People had preferences. And I mean, this happens all the time, right? This happens all the time. We find a pastor or a minister that we really connect with, whose style we like, who speaks to us, who's really winsome, who was there for us at a hard time that led us through. And then there's others that we don't connect with, that we have a hard time. And then we judge the one by the other, and we pit them against each other. This is what the Corinthian body was doing. We do this all the time in evangelical Christianity, in, in the tiny Reformed world of Christianity in America. You know, you have people who are, you know, I love Tim Keller, or I love John Piper, right? This, of course, happened in our church as well. There were those of you who preferred my leadership and my preaching and did not prefer Phil's, and there were some of you who preferred Phil's leadership and Phil's preaching style and did not prefer mine. This, despite the fact that we hold identical doctrine. So, when this happens to a church, we must hear the astonishment of Paul's question. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul or Phil or Chris? See, how this happens is very subtle. And it usually happens without us noticing it. And yet, all of us bear responsibility for when it does happen, and we have to be aware of it. 
not just you as congregational members, but pastors as well, because we sometimes in, in unintentional and intentional ways, we create an atmosphere in which this kind of thinking thrives. But we all, all of us, have to repent from it and realize that we as servants of the Lord, we as servants of the Lord serve the Lord. There is only one baptism, and it is into Jesus Christ alone. One Lord, one spirit, one body, one faith, one hope. And this is what Paul wants to remind the Corinthians, and this is what we need to remind ourselves of, that no pastor is indispensable, only Jesus Christ is indispensable. So Paul begins to address this deeper roots of division in the body by subtly reminding them of the meaning of their baptismal identity. And that's, again, where we need to start. The promise of baptism is the promise of a reconciled identity. And this morning, we, we baptize Aurelius into the body of Jesus Christ. And even though he doesn't know it yet, he was born into a world of conflict and division. All of us were born into the same world. His, in particular, has a fevered pitch right now. <laughs> All of us were born into that world of division but the promise of baptism is the promise of a reconciled life. It is the promise of a reconciled life in a world of strife and division. Baptism means that the most fundamental division of our life, the one from which all other divisions flow, our alienation from God, that division has been addressed and it has been healed. Baptism means that in Jesus Christ we have the forgiveness of sins, we have peace with God. We have reconciliation with God. Baptism means that we are sons and daughters of the Father in whom he is well pleased. It means that we belong to the Father's household and that we are deeply loved. It means that baptism is the first truth of our life, the fundamental presupposition of our entire identity. And that identity is grace. It is mercy. <laughs> it is the gift of life in the Holy Spirit. That is our identity. Now, these are what you might call the vertical dimensions of baptism, but there are hor horizontal dimensions to baptism as well, and these are the ones in particular that Paul focuses on in the opening of this letter, and you might consider these social marks of baptism. And what they are, you might call them, um, again, these are marks of our baptismal identity, and they correspond to um, what we see in the Nicene Creed and what it says about the marks of the church. In the Nicene Creed, we confess, we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. And that's really what Paul lays out for us here, is a baptismal identity that is one, it is holy, it is Catholic, and it is apostolic. And so let me, in, in sort of wrapping up, this sort of reflect briefly with you on each of these marks of our baptismal identity. And um, we'll be, I will come back to these in detail and in depth through the course of this letter, but they're, they're a nice framework to think about where Paul is wanting to lead us. So Paul's primary concern in this letter is for the oneness and the unity of the Corinthian body. That is the main argument. I already mentioned to you um, verse 10, which is the, the, the kind of thesis statement, if you will, of Paul's letter. 
I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So what does unity um, and oneness mean, practically speaking? How does it actually become manifest? And let me give you a very brief definition of unity. Unity is life together in and through the person of Jesus. Unity is life together in, through, around the person of Jesus. That's what unity in the church means. Unity isn't simply a matter that we all believe the same things. We do, in terms of the the core of the faith. Unity isn't that we share a common cultural experience that we can lean on, because the fact of the matter is, is we don't. Some of us do, not all of us do, though. Unity is relational. It's a relational activity in which we share our life together, in, through, and around Jesus Christ. And this requires common worship, common life, common mission, fellowship, engaging one another, life together. That is how unity becomes manifest. On one level, unity is a state of being in Jesus Christ. He is the unity of the church. He is the unity of the church, but it requires us to live into that unity, just like we live into the reality of our baptism. The church is one. Whether we see it or not, whether we experience it or not, the church is one because Jesus Christ is one and he has one body. But just like baptism, we can live in contradiction to our baptism. We can live in contradiction to the oneness of Jesus Christ. And I should just say, I mean, you know, this last year of pandemic has been incredibly difficult to do this, right? Social distancing, masks, not seeing each other, embodied. You cannot be a community of life together without embodied connection. If that were possible, Jesus wouldn't need to become incarnate, son of God. He could have sort of virtually kind of run salvation in, but he became a human being. He took on flesh and blood, and it's the same with us. The body of Christ is body. It's stuff. It's flesh. And so our fellowship is rooted in that body. So that is the oneness. That is a mark of our lives as baptized believers. The second mark is the mark of holiness. Um, Did you notice in the opening here what Paul says? He addresses the Corinthians as saints. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, given what we know about this church (laughs) and the divisions and the, the very profound moral problems that they have, it is pretty surprising that Paul identifies them as saints. The last, this is really the last congregation that we would call a saintly congregation. Um, And yet Paul calls them saints, and he's not ignoring the reality of their moral failures or their spiritual immaturity, but he wants to remind them of their identity. He wants to remind them that they are God's children that have been set apart and called by God. That's what it means to be a saint. The front line of what it means to be a saint, to be holy, is to be set apart. And the setting apart initially is something that God does to us. (laughs) He calls us. He sets us apart. Real holiness is our destiny, and we have to live into it. 
But first and foremost, to be a saint, to be holy, is to be someone who has been set apart and called by the Lord. It is, again, a gracious act of God. That's what it means to be the saint. And that's how we can say that little Aurelius right now is a saint. Even though he doesn't have a lot of experience in sinning, which he'll get to that, he is still a saint. And the reason he is a saint is because he's been set apart by God. And he's been given the gift of the Spirit. He's been given the promise of forgiveness of sins. That's what it means to be a saint. And that as he grows up, he will live into that reality and realize it more fully in a life of holiness. Because a life of holiness is the fruit of that act of God. So the moral dimensions of being a saint flow from that reality of being claimed and set apart from the Lord. And Paul's not being ironic here when he calls them saints. He's not being sarcastic. He is trying to remind them of this is your destiny. This is your calling. This is your responsibility. And God has provided everything you need in order to be and to do that reality. Holiness is a mark of our baptized identity. Without holiness, we are compromised. Without holiness, we become worldly. Without holiness, we become divided. I'll talk about this much more next week, but division in a church is a sign of the church's worldliness. A worldly church is a divided church. Now, Paul will address a lot of different moral issues in this letter, but his fundamental assumption throughout, even as he points them towards true Christian holiness, is a recognition of God's gracious prior act and intervention in their life. So we're called to be one, we're called to be holy, but we're also called to be apostolic. And this is perhaps one that you're not as familiar with. This is the third mark of our baptismal identity. And Paul, in the very first verses, he says, Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle. Paul, as an apostle, has a unique and specific authority in the life of the Corinthians. Now, as a pastor, I have authority. But my authority is not the same as the apostle Paul's. I am not an apostle. See, to be an apostle was a very different, it's very different from being an elder or a deacon or a pastor in the church. An apostle, along with the other 11 disciples, is a one-time, unique authoritative status in the life of the church, in the history of the church. There's a reference in Acts 2 that, that the early disciples in Acts 2, they, they were, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted for the apostles' teachings. The apostles were those who wrote the New Testament. And so when you think about what it means to be apostolic today, it's simply to, it's, it's a recognition that my life is devoted to the truth of the apostles and what they taught, which they received from Jesus Christ, which is nothing less than saying that I believe in the Holy Scriptures, that the Holy Scriptures, the New Testament and the Old Testament, is the only rule for life and faith and that I am devoted to it. I submit my life to that and that truth, no matter how difficult it might be. And, you know, you can't talk about unity in the church unless you can answer the question, what is it that we are united around? What is it that we are united around? And the apostles' teaching is what we're united around. Because the apostles' teaching tells us who Jesus Christ is and what he did and what it means to follow him. And so a church um, that, in which the apostles' teaching is not a mark of their life together is not a church that can be united. So there's one holy, apostolic, and finally Catholic. 
Paul presents us with the mark of being Catholic. Uh, let me direct your attention back to verse 2. To those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place are called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. It's that last phrase that I want to draw your attention to. Together with all those who in every place and every time and every age who call upon the name of the Lord. The problem with the Corinthians is they had a very narrow experience of church. They were hyper-local. They didn't have a bigger picture of the church as this vast, glorious, diverse body of people. And Paul is, from the beginning here, trying to subtly remind them that the church is bigger than you, that your experience of the local church is just one little fragment of the church Catholic. Now, I know a lot of people don't like this word Catholic because of its associations with, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, but the word Catholic, it means universal, but it means so much more than universal. The word Catholic, honestly, it is irreplaceable in the Christian's vocabulary. We are not a Roman Catholic Church, but we are a Reformed Catholic Church, and there are Lutheran Catholic Churches and Wesleyan Catholic Churches, because Catholicity is bigger than any denomination or any, any tradition. It is the universal, historic groundwork that allows us to recognize Christ and other Christians outside of this local body. And that's not to say that there's not significant differences theologically. And yet what unites us is this creedal faith that we confess in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. But Catholic is more than that. To be Catholic is to belong to something bigger than yourself, bigger than this body, bigger than my own experience of Christ. To be Catholic is to know that God and his ways are, are more diverse and broader than we could imagine. But to be Catholic also is to have a sense of the wholeness and the integration of our lives around Jesus Christ. See, Think about what we're struggling with personally. Division, fracture, separation, disconnection. To be Catholic is to be connected. It is to be united. It is to be reconciled. It is to be whole. See, to be Catholic is what God calls us to be, not just in name of our church and our doctrine, but it is very personal. God calls you to have a Catholic personality. Have you ever thought about that? What it means to have a Catholic personality? I'm going to talk about this a lot in the, in the weeks to come. But to have a Catholic personality is to have, have an enlarged capacity for lots of different kinds of people and personalities and ways. It is to have a cross-cultural understanding of the Christian faith and experience. It is to be deeper and richer in terms of your sense of God and his ways in the world. Being Catholic is a mark of maturity in Jesus Christ. A Catholic personality is the fruit of a reconciled life. Now, given what we know about all the problems in, in, in Corinth, and um, it'd be easy to imagine how frustrated Paul is 
and how he might even be tempted to, to, to address him with a sense of despair and pessimism at all the different things. But this is not how Paul addresses them. He is very direct, of course. He doesn't pull any punches about the problems. But as you see in the opening of his letter, he is genuinely hopeful and genuinely thankful for this congregation. He knows that God's grace is at work in them. He, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he knows that God is at work with them, even though they've got a lot of problems. And he knows that he has a lot to be thankful for for this congregation. He knows that they have a lot of challenges ahead of them, but he also knows that they are incredibly gifted and that they already possess within themselves as a body all the spiritual resources and gifts that they need in order to travel this pathway. And he knows that God is faithful. That's the biggest thing. He knows that God is faithful and that God will see this congregation to his desired end, which is fullness in Jesus Christ. And this, friends, is the same way I feel about this congregation and myself as a member of this congregation and the challenges that we face. Hopeful, knowing that God's grace is at work, deeply thankful, and knowing that God is faithful and he will see us to the end. Paul writes, and I, I echo this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Jesus Christ. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Father, we give you thanks for your grace, for the way that you have led us through this difficult season. We thank you for the gifts that you've poured out by your spirit upon this body and the way that you have allowed us to remain as witnesses of your grace and mercy in this world. We ask, Lord, that you do that work of reconciliation in, um, deep in our own hearts, but may that fruit of reconciliation with you uh, be manifest in all of our relationships. In this body and outside of this body and all those things, Lord, where we feel disconnect or alienation or division, help us to see, Lord, that it is your gracious, merciful forgiveness and new life in the spirit in which you bring about healing and reconciliation. So we give you thanks, we give you thanks um, for your word, for the ba baptism that we have in Jesus. And we thank you for this supper and this meal, which is also a sign and a means by which we are nurtured in our oneness in you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.